Well, good evening. We have some folks coming in, so they just feel free to come in and have a seat. Let me say a prayer for us as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have to come together to study your word. I pray your blessings on everyone here. I pray you'd help us to open our hearts and listen to the message that you have for us, the words that echo down through the centuries that are just so relevant to us today. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, just a little housekeeping first. That's the number to text your questions to uh, during the class. Just text them in there, and we'll answer as many as we can. I do need to tell you about our schedule. This uh, lesson tonight, we will finish Genesis, and we will not have Wednesday night activities in the church for the next three weeks. Next week is spring break, so that's the 18th. On the 25th, there's one special program in the church, but we don't have uh, programming. And then the next week would be April 1st. That's Holy Week. So we have a lot going on. We have a Maundy Thursday service on April 2nd. It'll be in here at 6.30 this time. And if you've never heard the communion story, or even if you have, bring your friends. It's a great experience. It's a great way to begin to prepare our minds for Good Friday services and for Easter, that Saturday and Sunday. So you'll notice in your bulletins, we'll show you our Easter schedule that week. But there's Thursday, Good Friday, Saturday night, Sunday morning services. Hope you invite people. It's a great time to invite people, your neighbors that don't go to church. I promise you, if you bring them, they will be pleased that they did. They'll feel welcome, friendly. You'll hear some great messages uh, from Marty and Matt. And uh, So anyway, uh, that's what's happening that third week. So we'll pick back up on April 8th. So no activities in our church on Wednesday for the next three weeks. But then on April 8th, we'll continue this class. And we will be ready to begin the book of Revelation. And as we study Revelation, we'll look at the different views. When we get through, my guarantee is you will understand those visions. They will scare you, but you will understand them. And we will put some connections with Genesis. There'll be some people joining us, probably, for the study of Revelation, but those of you that have been through Genesis, we'll connect the dots on a lot of things. I think you'll really enjoy it and find it uh, very useful. Well, in this session, we want to finish our story of Genesis. Let me remind you where we've been. We began with the prehistory. That's the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and some of those great stories of creation and fall, and then Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel. And you begin to see some of the great themes of the Bible, God's goodness, his creation of humanity in his image, and his purpose for creation. You begin to see the corruption of that creation, and the, the fall of humanity. And then you begin to see the downward, what I call the downward spiral of humanity. In other words, God turns us over to our own desires and self-centered wishes, our own sin, and you see it play out by the time of Noah and the flood, uh, kind of a new beginning. But even in the midst of that, just like today, even in the midst of what looked like dark times where our sin is out of control, you begin to see God moving through that with a plan. You begin to see him renewing and redeeming things. Then we moved on and we saw the story of Abraham about how God said, I'm going to affect all of history and humanity through this Abraham and his descendants. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and we talked about Isaac and Ishmael, and we took a little break to talk about Islamic Jihad and, and the Crusades, and now we've come back to that. So Abraham, then Isaac, and Isaac has a couple of sons, one of whom is Jacob, and Jacob is the, the key figure 
to begin to launch the nation of Israel and what God will do with them. So I'd like to talk about Jacob in this lesson. And Jacob is an interesting character because you're going to read this story and you're going to say, how did this get in the Bible? I mean, why does God even let this guy be in the Bible? Well, I'm encouraged by that because I'm a whole lot more like Jacob than I am like the person God made me to be. And it's very hopeful to know that what God's going to do with Jacob, he is doing with you and me as well. So as we tee this up on your note page, I want you to see Jacob's life go through some interesting phases. You'll see God's election, God's hand, his sovereign hand in history. You'll see the deceitfulness. You'll see the mess that gets made of life with Jacob. You'll see a transformation that God affects in Jacob's life. And then you'll see him bring about reconciliation. In fact, Jacob's life looks like the gospel in miniature, but it really happened. And so we're going to start with the story of a happy event, the birth of twins. Our story begins in Genesis chapter 25. So Abraham's son Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she wasn't able to have children. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. But the babies jostled each other within her womb, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. In other words, two children who are then going to become nations. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. A little upside down. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Esau means hairy. I tell you what, though, I'm really glad that my mom did not name me based on what I looked like when I was born. There'd be a lot of little kids named Wrinkled, you know, Conehead. There'd be all kinds of weird names, but that's what they did. And so he was... Uh, hairy, and he was red, real ruddy, and so they named him Esau. Esau means hairy. Edom means red, and you're going to see this child Esau referred to by both of these names. So he was red and hairy, so Esau, hairy, Edom, red. He's going to be known as uh, Edom as well. So they named him Esau, and after this, his brother came out, the second, the, the younger, and his hand was grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. And when this happened, Isaac was 60 years old. This is a, an interesting story. I want, to, I want to make one little side comment about this, because you're going to see a lot of enmity between Jacob and between Esau, or Edom, his brother. And in fact, I'm take a little detour from the story, and I want to show you something historical here. These are two maps. On the right side is a map of the Bible lands between Jacob's lifetime. Think of Jacob about approximately 1,800 years before Christ. So this map is what the world looked like between Jacob and Moses. Jacob 1,800, Moses, let's call it 1,400. So in that era. And you'll notice there's a nation called Edom there. This is where Esau's descendants settled, and he had a lot of kids and they became a great tribe and then they became big enough to to be a nation of people and the nation was named after its founder and it so it's called the nation of Edom 
and you'll see the Edomites, or the people of Edom, are going to have conflict throughout the rest of the Old Testament with the Israelites, who are going to be the descendants of Jacob. But what I want to show you is just to flash forward a really interesting little twist. On the left is a map of Israel from the time of Jesus. So we go from Jacob, 1,800 years before Christ, to the time of Christ. In this time, you see Israel, Samaria, Judea, but you notice that little country at the bottom called Idumea? It's a, it's a region. And I want you to, the spelling has changed, but you can see Edom in that. Idumea, Edom. Idumea is a territory, 1,800 years later, that's kind of the legacy of the nation of Edom. And I want to tell you the most famous Edomian that you will ever know, Herod. Herod was an Edomian. He was distantly, 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 you know, through the centuries, an Edomite. Jesus comes from whom? Jacob or Esau? Jacob, through the line of the Israelites. You're going to see why the Israelites are called the Israelites a little later in our story. And so it's interesting that as you're going to see Jacob and Esau, or Edom, battle, they're going to have great conflict, and their descendants are going to have great conflict. So one of the descendants of Edom, Herod, is going to try to kill Jesus, one of the great descendants of Jacob. It's just interesting to see how the stories we're talking about now carry even into New Testament times. So Esau's name uh, and there's, there's a story in the names. It means hairy, or Edom means red. Jacob means, uh, you see this in the footnotes to your Bible, but basically it means he grasps the heel because he was holding on to his brother's foot as they came out. It's called he grasps the heel. But that's figurative language, meaning he's tripping someone up. He is a deceiver. And so you'll sometimes see the name Jacob means a deceptive person or a deceiver. Well, it kind of does uh, metaphorically because somebody who grasps your heel, someone who trips you up is someone who tricks you or deceives you. And so Jacob comes out, and you're going to see that play on his name in just a little bit in the story. His name is somebody who grasps the heel. So he comes out with this idea of, uh, of a deceiver, of being deceptive. And watch how this plays out in his life. So the twins are born, Esau the older, and Jacob the younger. Our story continues. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who liked wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah, his wife, loved Jacob. Now, all right now you realize this is not a parenting story. This is, this is how not to parent your children. But basically, you see this uh, conflict. So Rebecca loved Jacob, though. One time when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country and he was famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, give me some of that red stew, some of that Edom stew. Give me some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was called Edom. Jacob said, well, first sell me your birthright, because the oldest son inherited uh, really everything. He got the blessing. He was ruler. He became the head of the family. So the oldest son is called primogenitor. In other words, you, you're going to be the number one person, and all your brothers are still always, all their lives, are going to kind of be subservient to you. So what he's saying, Jacob's saying to him is like, oh, really, you want some of this? Well, give me, sell me your birthright. In other words, let me have the option to be the oldest son. Esau, 
he just thinks nothing of this. He said, look, I'm about to die. I mean, what good is the birthright to me? I mean, I'm not going to inherit till dad dies. Sure. And Jacob said, well, swear, though. He said, oh, sure, I'll sell it to you. So he gave him some bread and some stew, and he ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So it's an interesting little incident that meant very little to Esau, but has huge implications because Jacob took advantage of that moment basically to, he didn't deceive his brothers, he just drove a really hard bargain. And Esau thought, this isn't, a, this isn't official. It's kind of like kids, right? If your brother, I have a brother, and every time he ever borrowed money from me as a kid, I, I learned quickly that when your brother borrows money from you and says, I'll pay you back, he has no intention of ever paying you back. You know, we're brothers, right? So that's kind of what Esau thought. He didn't think it was any big deal. Jacob did think it was a big deal. And there's an interesting lesson there about Esau. He's kind of a modern man, frankly. Esau's looking for what? Instant gratification. He's hungry, I want something. That birthright, that's years and years down the road. I'll take instant gratification for something down the road. Jacob, on the other hand, he's a schemer, isn't he? A little bit of a schemer. Uh, what he did might not have been illegal, but it was certainly unethical. And he's looking down the road how to gain an advantage. And that kind of characterizes their relationship a little bit. But one of the key ideas of this is you're going to see God turn this upside down. And he prophesied that the older will serve the younger. Well, that's puzzling. Like, that doesn't happen. And here you see them sort of playing it out. Esau says, being first doesn't mean anything to me. I'll, I'll sell it to you for a, a meal. Right? And so he gives up, in a sense, his birthright. And so things get turned upside down. And there's a powerful lesson here. Because God upset the natural order of things, and he said ahead of time he was going to do it. And this is the principle that you're going to see later. I mean, when you get into the New Testament, you talk about predestination and, and God's election and God's choosing, and that, that language is all over the New Testament. It starts here. It actually started before this, but it certainly starts here with God saying, I know that the world says older than younger. He says, but I determine the future of history, and it's going to be the younger that's going to carry out my plans going forward. And so God's election, his choosing, turns things upside down. You're going to see this, by the way, in the teaching of Jesus. So I want you, when you read this, I want you to realize these statements are actually claims Jesus is making about God's sovereignty, God's ability to, he is the one that's guiding things through life, not our order of things. Here's from the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not normal. Those who are poor in spirit are the downtrodden. Uh, those who mourn, they're happy, blessed, because they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek. We don't think about those categories of people as being top tier. We think of them as being lower tier. It's unfortunate you're mourning. You've lost something. It's unfortunate you're poor. It's unfortunate for you that you're meek and you won't stand up and go grab what you can get out of life. God says, no, I determine how future goes forward, and these are the people on top. Jesus says several times, many who are first will be last, many who are last will be first. What's he saying? It's not just predictive, like, okay, some of the, the people you think are the greatest in the world aren't greatest in the kingdom of God. Well, he's saying that, but he's also saying that God's economy is really different. And God has chosen to value different things than what our culture values. That is a huge principle through all of Scripture. Because if you looked at what we've done so far in Genesis, what you realize is people valued then what 
our culture values now. I want to get security, money, fame, fortune, power, whatever for myself. And we witness through Genesis what happens when people pursue that, that blind self-interest. Pick up a newspaper today. That's what happens in the world when people pursue that. God says that's not going to be the winners in the kingdom. The winners in my kingdom are going to be the ones that follow me, that obey me, that are chosen according to my purpose. So you get this strong idea of election happening. So that's their birth, and it kind of sets the stage for conflict, doesn't it? And so our story goes on, and let me just pick up in chapter 27. I want to tell you to move into this uh, section called what I call deception or deceit. This is people living out their natural tendencies. And, and Jacob, who's, this is the really interesting part. Jacob is chosen by God to be his vehicle to launch the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. But his name kind of foretells a little bit of deceptiveness and watch how his life lives that out. This guy doesn't look anything like a hero. Genesis 27, when Isaac was old, he got blind. So we're getting near the time Isaac's going to die. And so he called for Esau, his oldest son, the one he really loved, and he said, look, I want to bless you before I die. Blessing him basically meant I'm going to transfer the mantle of power. I'm going to say you get the checkbook and you've got signature rights on the accounts and you're going to be the top dog and I'm just going to officially transfer headship of this family to you. He said, go hunt some of that good game that I love and then bring it back to me, cook it up, bring it back to me, and I'm going to bless you and you're going to get it. Well, Rebecca is listening and she hears this. And so she goes to her favorite son and said, listen to me. I want you to go get a couple of young goats and you bring them to me and I'm going to cook up some food like your father likes. And then you're going to take it into him and you're going to tell him you're Esau and he's going to give you the blessing instead. He's blind as a bat. He'll never know. And so Jacob, now Jacob doesn't have any problem with the plan. He's just afraid of getting caught. Jacob says, but wait a minute, mom. I'm kind of a, a smooth-skinned guy. I shave every day. Esau, he's a hairy guy. Apparently very hairy, by the way. He's a hairy guy. There's no way he's even blind that he's going to think that I'm Esau. So he doesn't have a problem with stealing the blessing. He just has a problem with getting caught. I mean, this is our man of the Bible, right? Uh, Mr. Moral uh, Paragon here. So he's, he says, we're going to get caught. But she says, you just trust me. I know how to work this thing out. You just go do what I tell you, and I will work this thing out. So he does. He goes, he gets the kids. She takes a sheepskin, and she puts it on his neck, and she puts it, ties it to his arms. Esau must have been really hairy, all right? <laughs> ties it to his arms, dresses him in some of Esau's clothing, so he'll literally smell like Esau. She dresses him up, puts this on a thing, takes in the good food, so he walks into his dad, and said, Dad, here I am. And he says, who are you? He says, and he lies to him. He says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And so he, Isaac said to him, he says, well, come close so I can feel you. And he does. He feels his arm and he goes, yeah, that's pretty hairy. That's Esau, right? And so he says this, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob says, I am. So he's lying, he's deceiving his father, and he's cheating his brother out of his birthright. He says, okay, here's your blessing. He said, may God give you the dew of heaven. 
Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. You will be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And so the deception works and he receives the blessing from his father and he effectively steals the birthright. He's now head of the family. But the story's got a lot of drama. It says no sooner than he had walked out, Esau comes in, and he scarcely left his father's presence when Esau came in, and he had prepared some food and brought it. And he said, my father, sit up and eat some of this so you may give me your blessing. This is like one of those sad stories. His father Isaac says, who are you? He says, well, I'm your son. I'm Esau. And Isaac trembles violently and said, well, who was it that I just blessed? And in fact... He will be blessed because I gave him my blessing. And Esau heard his father's words and said he screamed. He just cried out in a bitter cry. And he says, bless me too. He said, no, your brother came deceitfully. Jacob the deceiver deceived me and cheated you. He came deceitfully and he took your blessing. And Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Isn't, isn't he called deceiver for a reason? He deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. He says, haven't you reserved anything for me? And Isaac said, I've made him Lord over you and everything else. And that's just the way it's going to be. He said, don't you have a blessing for me too? And he said, and then Esau began to weep aloud. And so his father said, behold, away from the fatness of the earth will your dwelling be. And you notice that Edom is down in the desert. It's not in the great part of Israel. Edom is farther down in the south. He said, you're going to live away in a not-so-good place. Your sword will be how you live, and you will serve your brother. But there will be conflict between you. And sure enough, throughout time, there's conflict between them. So that, that prophetic blessing of the conflict, because of the deceitfulness of Jacob, just tears this family completely apart. Well, Esau's not the kind of guy to take this line down. He's a man's man. He's a hunter. He's got a shotgun. So he says, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had given him. And Esau said to himself, my dad's going to die soon. And when he dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. Not before, but as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. Well, Rebecca hears this and realizes, this is not good. I don't want to lose my son. And so she said to Jacob... You need to leave. I don't want Esau to kill you. I'd end up losing both my sons. You need to go away until Esau gets over this. So I want you to go to your uncle's place. He lives back up in Mesopotamia, I think Iraq. So he takes a pretty good trip. He says, you go up there and you live with him, and I'll tell you when it's safe to come back. So Jacob goes, and he meets one of Laban's, Laban is his uncle, one of his daughters named Rachel, and he just falls head over heels. So he begins to work for his uncle, and so he says, I want to marry Rachel. You may remember this story, but Laban says to him, well, why don't you work seven years for me, and since you don't have any money, you don't have a, anything to, to give for me to marry her, you work for me seven years and she'll be your wife. And it said that he was so in love with her, it seemed like the seven years flew by. But he worked keeping the flocks for his uncle, and things really went well. And the day came when Rachel was to be his bride. So they get married. She's got the veil and everything on. And so after the ceremony, he wakes up the next morning, though, and there's her older sister, not so attractive, not who he's in love with, and that's who he's married. 
he got deceived by Laban. And he marries her, and he goes to Laban, and he said, what have you done to me? You have deceived me. Behold, it was Leah, not Rachel. And Laban said, well, that's just not our custom. You know, I can't marry off the younger daughter without marrying off the older daughter. So he's not repentant, is he? He just cheated him and obviously cheated him. He said, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. Since you're kin, you work another seven years, then I'll give you Rachel, right? So you got to marry both girls, but give you another seven years and you can marry Rachel. And so he does. And so he, he's been deceived by his uncle, but he goes the next seven years. Rachel becomes his wife as well. And then I'm going to skip over this, but that deception just causes turmoil. And so there's turmoil between Leah and Rachel, and Rachel can't have children, and Leah does, and Leah never feels loved you know, by Jacob, and their family just has turmoil. You see the legacy of his deceit, the legacy of this Jacob always trying to figure a way to get what he wants. He wants the birthright. He wants to be number one. He wants to be rich. He's trying to figure out a way to, to make a good living out of Laban. He wants what he wants from life. He is the modern man. And yet his life is kind of falling apart all around him. And so he's very deceptive, and you see this deceit. And so Laban uh, begins uh, to be very popular, but Jacob realizes, I'm getting nowhere here. My father-in-law is getting rich, but nothing good is happening to me. So he goes to Laban, and he realizes Laban is not so favorable to him anymore. And he says, look, I need to, I'm ready to go back. I'll take my chances with Esau. This isn't going too well for me. And Laban basically says, but God's prospered me because you've been here. So what is it that you want? Well, Jacob the deceiver comes up with a great little plan. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll take the speckled sheep, the not-so-good sheep, and I'll take the weaker ones out of the flock, and they'll be mine. I'll take the goats that aren't the right color, and I'll take the speckled sheep, and you get all the perfect ones. And in fact, those are the stronger ones, and you're not going to make a living on the, on the weaker sheep. But he says, those will be mine, these will be yours. I'll take care of all of them, and then it'll be obvious that I'm not cheating you. Laban goes, sounds like a deal to me. That's pretty easy to know whose or whose. So Jacob takes them, and Jacob comes up, give you the short version of the story. Jacob since he's managing the flocks, he manages it so that all of the really good females in the flock mate with the speckled ones. And so all of a sudden, against all natural odds, there are way, 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 way more speckled sheep here. Laban shows up one day and realizes, I'm a pauper, and he's got all the sheep. And I can't even argue because you could, his are speckled, mine are white. And so he's deceived his father-in-law to get rich. Well, needless to say, at that point, his father-in-law is, get out. He's like, good, I wanted to leave anyway. So he takes all his stuff, takes his wife, takes his kids, and heads out back. And I just want to pause for a second to just talk about this idea of deception, of Jacob living out his name. And the point there is he's living out his nature. It, for, we don't name ourselves what we are. You know, if we look around, it'd be like if, you know, across my forehead, my name was who I am, impatient lustful, self-centered, whatever. I mean, that's kind of him. He's literally named what he is. That's that deceitful guy. He'll do anything to get ahead and he'll cheat anybody. But it's really interesting that the Bible names him that because literally, what do you see him doing? His self-centeredness, his sin, literally lives out who he is. He's not just named Jacob the deceiver. He is a deceiver. In this story, everything I've told you so far, who is trustworthy in this story? No one is trustworthy in this story. 
Rebecca's not trustworthy, Esau's not trustworthy, Jacob's not, Laban's not. You're going to find out later that neither is Leah and Rachel. You know, nobody in this story is trustworthy. You just kind of see this ugliness of human nature. So he decides to go back, and he realizes that this is going to be a little difficult. You know, obviously I'm going to go back to Esau, hope he doesn't remember all that stuff I cheated him out of, right? Because otherwise this isn't going to go bad. Well, and so... He gets close to Esau, and he, a messenger comes to him, and he says, is Esau coming out to meet me? The messenger says, in fact, he is. He's coming to meet you with 400 armed men. Well, at that point, you're thinking, okay, maybe he hasn't forgotten. You know, maybe we're not over this yet, right? And so Jacob, the shrewd guy, says, this is not going to go well for me. I got wives, got the kids, got the flocks. My brother's still ticked off, and he's going to come, and he's going to kill me. So he gets a bunch of gifts ready, a bunch of sheep and goats and all, and he starts to send messengers one after another ahead of him. Each one's got huge gifts. He said, now, when you get to Esau, tell him, and he says, what is this? He goes, oh, this is a gift to you from your brother Jacob, and he's coming. And then the next one, oh, this is another gift from Jacob, and he's coming. So he's trying to warm him up, right? He's trying to do it his way. He's trying to make this work out. Well, something really important happens to him in that evening as he's getting ready on the night before he's there. He sent all his little presents ahead. Esau's still there with his 400 warriors. And that night, he arranges his family. And so he puts his beloved Rachel and her beloved son in the back. And he puts Leah and her kids up front, you know. And, uh, I mean, this is not... Not a healthy family, right? I mean, they clearly needed counseling. But anyway, puts her up front, and on that night, he sends them across the ford, and then he remains alone, and God intervenes to change the course because God's elective purpose is still going to happen despite the sin and deceitfulness of humanity. He says, that night, Jacob took his wives, maidservants, etc., and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. And after he'd sent them across, he sent over all his possessions, so he was by himself. And here's this cryptic story. It says, And a man, an angel, came and wrestled with him until daybreak. And so you see this physical grappling with this stranger intruder, but you really see Jacob begin to wrestle with who he is. His name has defined who he has been. And he now needs to decide as he faces this great crisis in his life, is that going to determine who I will be? And so this physical conflict mirrors this conflict inside of him, this wrestling. It says, and so Jacob was left alone and he wrestled until daybreak. All night he wrestled with this. And when the angel saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So he's wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he does. And he says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but your name will be Yisrael, Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Israel, that name, is a new name and it's a new identity. And it means he wrestles with God or he struggled with God and prevailed meaning he came through it. It's not that he beat God in a wrestling match. The point is, what's happening in that night is Jacob the deceiver has to decide who will you be. And God intervenes literally with an angel, but also inside him and says, who are you going to be? 
And he comes through that night crippled. Jacob walks with a limp from then on. I mean, he literally is crippled because of the touch of that wrestling. But he comes out of it with a new name and a new identity. He's the one who has wrestled his former identity, and he has come through it. And so God's purpose in this transformation is to change the course of Jacob's life. And it's interesting that you see God intervening in the form of the angel, and you see Jacob participating. He's the one who's wrestling this to the ground. And so he gets this new name to go with this new identity. There's a really interesting parallel in the book of Revelation, and we'll study this passage on April 8th. But in Revelation 2.17, Jesus is speaking to Christians, and he said, for those of you who overcome... I want you to think what happened here. He wrestled and overcame. Not that he overcame God, he overcame his past. Those of you who overcome, I will give a new name. And that's literally what happens here. We sort of, Jesus says, live out this Jacob story. And so he gives us a new name. And we'll talk a lot about names in the book of Revelation. But Jacob is no longer the deceiver. He's now the one who has struggled with God and prevailed. And so his future looks radically different. And there's just an incredible parallel here. As you look at Jacob's life, you see that he's chosen by God for great things. But he doesn't live up to those. He lives up to his name, the deceiver, right? The guy who's grasping after the future. God brings him to a place where he is hopeless. Esau is going to kill them all. And he ends up literally wrestling with God of who are you going to be? Are you going to be who I made you to be, who I chose you to be before you were born? Or are you going to continue to give in to your sin? Do you hear echoes here of Cain and Abel? What did God say to Abel when he was downcast because God didn't like his sacrifice? He's thinking about killing his brother. Do you remember what he said? Sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you, but you must master it. And Cain doesn't, does he? Jacob comes through this, a new man, a new name. And that is a major theme all through the rest of the Bible. You'll see it in Revelation, but you see it hugely in the gospel. Is that God comes to us and says, before you were born, I had a plan for you and I've made you. Ephesians chapter 2. God chose us before the foundation of the world. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. Chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before he was born, God chose Jacob to be the man who was going to carry his mission forward. Before you were born, God chose us to be that. Jacob didn't live up to that, did he? He lived down to his nature, who he was. I think we have too. We've lived down to our sin, our self-centeredness. But then Jacob, God intervenes and says, I want you to go this way, and I will take you this way. And the same thing happened with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he comes through this, a new man walking with a limp, always remembering what happened. And the same is true for you and me. We carry our past, the effects of our past with us, it's not who we are anymore, but we limp in a sense, don't we? We all limp with the injuries of our past. 
the legacy of our self-centeredness, the legacy of our deceitfulness, the legacy of whatever sin it was that Christ freed us from. And so we are Jacob characters. Does that make sense? And we, this story is very much personal about us as well as God's global plan. So we continue to walk as cripples in a sense. And that's why, by the way, that the founder of the nation of Israel is going to be a crippled guy with a really checkered past whom you would think, how can this guy be a hero of the Bible? In because God turns things upside down. In the future, you're going to see humanity being saved by what? A powerful conquering Savior? Crucifixion on a cross. You're going to see a church prevail in the world. Why? Because we all got our AK-47s together and conquered the world? No, through persecution and loving the world. Do you see how God turns that upside down? He takes the weak things of the world and he makes them strong. He took this crippled Jacob, this guy with the checkered past, and he becomes the father of Israel. Took you and me and makes us strong. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said to the Lord, take away my weakness so that I can do this. But God said, my grace is all you need. My power is made perfect in your weakness. It's like Jacob saying, would you take away the limp? And God said, that's a sign of my power. You just continue to walk with the limp and I'm with you and that's all that you need. And Paul said, if that's the case, I'll boast in my weakness, not in my strength. God's always turned the tables upside down. And I don't know about you, but I think that's very encouraging because God doesn't expect you to be rich or powerful or good-looking. You all are, because I can see all of you. I mean, you are good-looking, but he doesn't expect that from you. He doesn't expect you to be successful at everything. He doesn't expect you to make all the right decisions in life. That's comforting. Jacob's story is, is the point is, is that God's purposes will be fulfilled in us even with our checkered past. So this idea of transformation is huge throughout the Bible. Question? Yes. Um, going back to the Edomites, did they keep their red coloring? Did Herod have the red coloring? Um, are there people in that region today that have that coloring, or are they all in Ireland? <laughs> I, I won't comment on the Irish, uh, but no, that's not a trait that that carried itself down visibly to everybody in the past. I think Esau was uncharacteristically hairy guy. So no, it's not. But the name carried itself down from its founder. But no, I don't know that there's any specific ethnic things. I mean, the fact that he looked different, he's still genetically related to Jacob. So not that I know of. What is the difference between the birthright and the blessing? Yeah, the birthright and the blessing is the patriarch Isaac can give his blessing to whomever he wants, but it needs to go to the firstborn. In other words, that's the way the world worked. But he could bless whoever he wants, and he does. And even, even though he was deceived, he said, I have blessed him. I've asked God to, in some way, divinely transfer this blessing, this leadership, this inheritance to him. That goes against the way of the world and what I wanted to do, but that's what happened. So his blessing is really him basically reading the will. That's a bad analogy. Reading the will that says, this is who's going to get everything. You can will it to whomever you want, but the tradition and the way they thought the world worked was, the first one gets everything. 
just like we think the way the world works is the blessed people are the rich, the powerful, etc. And Jesus said, nah, I'm going to change that. So the birthright was a tradition, the blessing was the actual passing on. Good question. So the scripture says that he wrestled with a man. How do we know that was an angel? And if it was an angel, then he wasn't really wrestling with God. Yeah, let's talk about how the New Testament talks about things, or New Testament, how the Old Testament talks about things. Because it's going to sound a little odd to you, but this is really common. I didn't talk about this with Abraham, but it happened with Abraham, happened with Isaac. It's going to happen a lot. But the way the Old Testament language is such that he wrestled with what looked like a man. The scripture says it was an angel. And he says, you have wrestled with God because that was God's representative. That sounds to you like, wait, that's not very precise. I'm an engineer, and frankly, that just doesn't compute. In Hebrew thinking, that makes perfect sense. And, and you'll see it all over. So it's not like, oh, we just found an error. We didn't find an error. I mean, unless, you know, the writing of this is a totally schizophrenic person. They're literally writing that right there. You say, well, what do you mean? They mean that it looked like a man, it was an angel, and a representative God. You've effectively wrestled with God. Does that make sense? They're not very concerned about telling you the guy's name and what he looked like and his weight. You know, he weighed in at 190, wrestled at 180, you know, when he dropped weight. They don't care about that. You know, so that's a good point. When you read it, he wrestled with what looked like a man. He understood this is no mere man. This is a messenger of God. And actually, it's going to say, he wrestled with God. He effect, this is God intervening. That's just the way Hebrews think about things. And it's really common. This isn't the only time you'll see that happen. So it's, it's not an anomaly. Okay? Well, let me finish up the story because it has an interesting ending. Because once God intervenes to change or give the opportunity to change the course of human life, to fulfill the destiny things start to happen. So let's finish the story because I don't want to leave you hanging with Jacob about to uh, face a bunch of armed men. So in the morning he looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the maidservants and he put the maidservants and the children in front thinking maybe he won't kill the kids but if he does I'll have time to run. And he says then Leah and her children next and then Rachel and blessed little Joseph, favorite child, will be in the rear. He himself went ahead, and he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, and he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. And so you see, against all odds, this reconciliation happening. And again, I can't help pointing this out, and I don't want to bore you, but I want you to see the vivid nature. That's the gospel. If you were writing the story about Terry or about you, you would say, wow, looking at this picture, before he was born, God had this plan for him. And, oh, gosh, he screwed up. Oh, man, he screwed up again. Oh, he screwed up again. He's living down to typical human nature. This sure looks like the days of Noah before the flood. In other words, us being us, self-centered little deceivers, right? If you looked at my life, that's what you'd see and say, oh, God intervened. In whatever way God intervened and grabbed hold of you or drew you or pulled you, it's like this angel wrestling and then basically giving you the messages, your past does not determine who you are. I determine who you are. Are you with me? And we said, yeah, I'll follow you. I want that old guy to go away. 
give me a new name, make me a new person. Does this sound like the gospel to you? This sounds exactly like the book of Romans, doesn't it? Our old self is dead, and we have been raised to walk in new life. This is the gospel story. The story of Jacob is us, and then against all odds, we go to live lives, and I'm not telling you it's perfect, but now we begin to experience Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. Not overnight. Jacob's life doesn't become perfect overnight. But he's a new man. And he's going a different direction. And that same is true for you and me, isn't it? You read this story and you go, there is no way Esau is going to let him live. And yet he does. You look at our story from the vantage point of history, you go, there is no way that guy is going to ever be standing up here and be a pastor because his past is too checkered. There's no way you're going to be who you are. There's no way you're going to be on this. Wait a minute. Look what God did. Does that make sense? Reconciliation happens as unlikely as it seems. Jacob's story is our story. Jacob's story is a foreshadowing of the gospel. Well, Jacob, now called Israel, goes on to have 12 sons, and they go on to have kids, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the founder, the father, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the Israelites are named after a guy just like you and me. And I'm really grateful that God took the messiness of human life. And that's one of the great lessons out of this. What does this story tell you about God? It says God has a purpose. God is able to fulfill that purpose. And no matter where we go, no matter how deceptive we've been, no matter how far we go, he will intervene. And if we will turn, he will lead us to reconciliation, lead us in a completely different direction. What does it say about us? It says God's willing to do that in the middle of the messiness of human life. Because now that you know the story of Jacob, how can you ever think that there's anybody God can't save? I mean, this guy looks like completely a complete loser. I mean, if we saw him... We wouldn't let him teach Sunday school. Actually, we wouldn't let him do anything in our church. It's like, oh, we're looking over your volunteer request form. And frankly, your background check came back with some real problems here. Did a little time for this, you know, had to leave the country because of this problem. And it says here, you're a congenital liar, cheat, thief, you know. I mean, it's just crazy. And yet that's what God dives into the middle of and turns that direction. So this, what you see happening is you go all the way from the beginning of Genesis and the fall of humanity. Jacob lives out the fall of humanity, just like we have. That's who we used to be too. And then you see him saying, I'm going to show you in the life of Jacob what I'm ultimately going to do for all of humanity. Jacob has these 12 children and these 12 tribes. He says, I'm going to show you in the nation of Israel, as unfaithful as they are, what I'm going to do. Over and over and over again, from the fall to the flood, to Abraham, to Jacob, through the rest of the Old Testament, you see that same theme of God's power to accomplish his purposes despite our sin. That's the message of Genesis. That kind of sets up the rest of the Bible. And everything else plays this story out. A lot of the rest of the Bible is the story of Israel trying to take this message of God to the world. And Israel themselves falling into sin and being unfaithful but God still being faithful, still accomplishes his purpose despite that. And here's Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is going to show us how does it all play out in the end? In other words, what started in Genesis, how does it play out? 
Well, it turns out it plays out with evil being pretty powerful. And we have fallen deeply as a culture, as a world, back into that evil. And yet God's thread continues to run through this. And so in our next study, we'll pick up kind of where Genesis leaves off and you'll get to see the end of the story. Do we win or do we lose? When we wrestle with God, which way do we turn? And in the end, can God really get us back to the garden? And the answer is, I'll just tell you now, I hope you still come from the series, but yeah, he actually can. But it involves some strange creatures, some weird visions, and some unbelievable battles. That's what we'll talk about on April 8th. So I hope you join us for Revelation. Thank you, guys.